You are listening to Truth, a six-week teaching series from Jubilee Church. This series looks at the book of Titus to explain how truth is lived out within the church community. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Good morning. We are in a series in the book of Titus called Truth Living What You Believe because uh, what you believe isn't what you say you believe, but how you live is what you say you believe. What you believe gets manifested in how you, how you live. Um, and what that means is, and we've been talking about in this series, that doesn't mean that you like white knuckle it as a Christian. Many people think like, well, okay, if I'm supposed to live a certain way, then I really got to try hard and I got to make sure that I look pretty on the outside. And we talked last week that that's kind of like, you know, if you wanted to, to impress uh, people with the front of your house, you know, if you want a big rose bush, one thing you could do, you go to Schnucks or wherever your favorite flower places, buy some flowers and duct tape them to some other pole or something like that. And people driving by may think you have a rose bush. The only problem with that is it's exhausting. You'd have to do it every week. Uh, but if anybody ever came up close, they would know that you're just faking it. Kind of like how some people live the Christian life. And what Paul's saying, though, is not that's not what we're supposed to do, but we plant the seed, we plant the gospel seed, we plant the, uh, a, a rose bush seed, uh, whatever that's called, and, um, and then out of that, I don't know anything about flowers except that, and then, then out of that comes this rose bush, out of this comes a Christian life, and uh, we plant the gospel of grace and, and the fruit comes out. Um, Paul says to another group of Christians that he, God works both the will and the way to do what he has us to do when we, when we do this. Uh, Jesus talking about how this gospel works in our heart. It's like it's like a farmer who plants a seed and then he goes to bed. How hard is it to go to bed? Not hard. He doesn't do anything. And then he wakes up and then there's there's all there's this harvest. And that's the way the gospel works. You like you plant the gospel in your heart and then you wake up one day and you're like, oh my gosh, I want to read the Bible. Oh my gosh, I don't I don't want to do this, but I want to do this now. And and that's what he's saying. It's like plant the gospel in your heart and God does this internal work and out of that this is what this life looks like. And today we're going to continue in this practical instruction uh, that we've been talking about so far in Titus. But I want to give the vision statement for you out of verse 14. We're looking at 7 through 15, but verse 14 kind of gives the vision statement. It says, who, that is Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So here's kind of the big vision that Jesus Christ gave himself for us. That he came to earth to die in our place to redeem us. We were just not lost and needed to be found. We were guilty and we needed to be redeemed. We were guilty of sin and, and the sin, the wages of sin, the result of sin is death. If you lie, that's death to relationship. If you, if, when, you, when you sin, it's, it brings about death. And Jesus paid the redemption price. Uh, being ransomed isn't so popular in our culture, but in Latin America, wealthy families get kids get ran, uh, kidnapped all the time, and they bear hell for ransom. And who's going to pay the price? Jesus paid the price. He didn't just pay the price uh, by sending an angel. He didn't pay the price by giving a bunch of money. He paid the price with himself to do this to create himself a people of his own possession. God is a father, and he's looking for a family from every tribe, every tongue. From every, he's trying to create a new group of people from every group of people on the earth. He's, he's creating a people for his own possession, and he chose you. And I was, as I was thinking about this message, I was preparing for this message, I thought, how many of us live every day 
with this thought that Jesus chose us. If you're in Christ, God chose you, that you are his possession. You are precious to God. It's not just that he arbitrarily makes unrighteous people righteous like in his Christian making factory. Like he just wants to get rid of sinful people to make them, you know, holy, like just like he wants them. No, 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 no. The Bible says that you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself tells a parable, excuse me, tells a trio of parables in Luke 15 that all have the same point. Talks about a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. And in these parables, there's a woman who lost a coin and she like turned every, her house upside down looking for this lost coin. And there was a, there was a, there was a shepherd who lost a sheep who left the 99 who, to get this, this one sheep. And then there was a father who lost a son who waited anxiously every day for this son to return. And then when seeing him in a far distance, he didn't stand there tapping his foot, but undignified, he ran after his son and kissed him, gave him the ring, threw a big party and celebrated. And as a parent, if you've ever lost a, or thought you lost a child, I mean, you know what this moment's like. A few months ago, we were at a um, high school basketball game, a local high school basketball game. They gave you know, the kids, elementary school kids, all free tickets, so we went, and, like, there's just hundreds and hundreds of people at this basketball game, and, uh, you know, you got one eye on your kids, and you got one eye on the crowds trying to get through, and there was a moment where it was, I, I had one eye in the crowd, but the other eye lost Simon, and so I was, where's Simon? I looked at Rachel, where's Simon? Oh, I asked Josie, Ella, where's Simon? They don't know. You know, Rachel, you go this way, I'll go this way. You know, you take one kid with you, I'll take the You know, we, you, we go in separate directions, and we, did you find him? No, did you find him? No, did you find him? I kept looking, kept looking, and we're just, you know, going through my mind. I'm sitting there thinking, like, you, you think the craziest things, like, how am I going to explain this to, you know, you know, Rachel, should I, if this, if he, if I lose my son, should I quit being a pastor? I mean, you're just thinking all these things, like, it's weird. And, but then you, but then there, you find them. You find him. And, and, you know, you're not like, you're just like the hug. When you find a kid that you thought you lost, that, that hug is like the best hug in the world. Did you know your father in heaven thinks that way about you? He's not tapping his foot at you, but you are chosen. You are his possession. And this is all for a purpose. It says, a possession who are zealous for his good works, who are passionate about putting Christ on display, who want to obey God. Now I was thinking, another thought I was thinking about, it's like this entire universe, this ga- all the galaxies and the billions of galaxies and the stars, the moon and all this stuff, they all obey God. They all do what God says. If, if they didn't, we'd all be in trouble. But they all obey God. But there's this one planet with this one group of people who shake their fists and say, we don't believe you, we don't trust you, we don't love you. And the Bible says, out from amongst that group of people, the church arises, and they are zealous about good works. They are zealous about putting Christ on display. They are a city on a hill. They are the salt of the earth. They are ambassadors. They are witnesses. And this is the big vision that Paul's giving to Titus, and he's, but he's very practical in saying this is how it's lived out. And we, taught, we started that last week by talking about this is, you know, older women, younger women, older men, younger men. And, and now he, we're going to continue in verse 7. He's talking about pastors and elders, guys like me. He says, show your, he says to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. As human beings, we are imitative by nature. We need examples. We need 
models. We need direction. We need challenge and inspiration. Paul, the word here he uses is typos. It means prototype. And we know from the Old Testament that there's all these people in the Old Testament that are prototypes, that are examples. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. Some of them are for a warning and some are for encouragement and challenge. And hey, this is the way to go. But God did not just want to give us dead models and dead examples. He wanted to give us living examples that would come amongst us. And he says certainly those who are leading the church, those who are elders need to be an example. That's why Paul did not hesitate to tell the churches, hey, follow me. He says uh, to the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Paul expected the same thing of Titus as an expectation of eldership. First Timothy 4, he tells Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set for the believers an example in all these things, speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. First Peter 5.3, Peter says something very similar to the elders there. He said, you don't domineer those in charge, but being examples to the flock. Elders give examples, they don't give orders. They're, they're not there just to, you know, you do this, you do that. They're, they're to be examples, to be amongst. That's why the Bible focuses way more on the character and what an elder must be than what they do. Every time someone comes up to me, hey, I want to be a pastor, I want to be a preacher. All right, well, let's, let's serve. Let's, let's do the tough stuff. Let's see what your character's like. Because this is what it's about. It's about, you know, people need an example. And this is what elders must be. But it's not just with the elders, of course. It's meant to be throughout the church. That's why older men with younger men, older women with younger women, being examples to one another, living lives that reflect the gospel, marriages that reflect the gospel, living out your single life reflecting the gospel in your workplace, in your communities. So Titus says, I want you to influence people with your example, but also in his teaching. So check out the next verse. It says, in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Teaching and the example, the verbal and the visual, this powerful combo. And there's three things he says that should be in the teaching. Integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech. So when we come up and say stuff, that we're not saying things that you, you can't find somewhere in our lives. We're not saying one thing and then doing another. But there's to be integrity in what we say. Now next week, again, this is all the church. Next week we're going to talk about the speech that we use, uh, you know, all of us, the speech for all of us. So it's, it's, it's in the elders so that it can be in the church. Um, so integrity of speech, seriousness. Not that we're like, we take ourselves seriously. We take what God says very seriously. We take the gospel seriously. We take people seriously. We take eternity seriously. We're serious about serious subjects. Soundness of speech, not twisting the Bible to make it be what we want it to be, but actually not being examiners of the Bible, but actually letting the Bible examine you. So James says, James says the, the word of God is like a mirror, a soul examining mirror. And a, and a mirror uh, tells you what you're like. And so if you look in a mirror and you've got like a broccoli like hanging out of your teeth, like you can look in the mirror and say, oh my gosh, um, I've got, I need to remove that. And that same thing the Bible does. The Bible, you look in the Bible and it's like examines your soul. It's a soul examining mirror and saying, hey, look, you're off this way, you're off this way. And so we allow the Bible to do that. So we want to be 
sound about that. So then Paul, then Paul moves, moves and says, okay, this is how you make this work in your homes and in the church. And this is, this is how the gospel can be put on display. But the gospel just is not meant to live in the four walls of the church. It's meant to be out there in the community. So let's talk about the gospel in your workplace. So he goes there in verse 9. Bond servants, which we don't have time to talk about this, but basic, the best way to learn from this is just you know, like a day laborer are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Our work, the way we go about our work, should put the, the, the doctrine of God on display. It should be like this example. And if there's this, an area of life where I think Christians get really confused is how to be a Christian at work. I mean, you just hear like the craziest stuff. So they're like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to combine my passion for Christ for my job. So I know what I'll do. I'll start a coffee shop called Jehovah Java, like, or He Brews, or my favorite, St. Arbucks. Like, you know, that's, that's what it means to like combine your passion or here, I've, this is not a joke, top 100 things you can do. I'm not going to do all 100. Top 100 things you can do to share your faith at work. Here's one. Put up a sign that says, ask us about our exchange policy. When customers ask, let them know about your actual policy. And then if they would like to hear about the greatest exchange policy on the planet, Jesus' righteousness for our sin. Number 60. When a customer has paid his bill in full, send an invoice that says paid in full. These were the same words the bloody Jesus spoke from the cross about your sin. That's one thing. You, or here's, here's the last one. Create a business card with your name on it, and then after it, put AFC, Ambassador for Christ. <laughs> These are just some, a few examples of what you can do to put Christ on display at the workplace. Um, I'm sorry if you do any of those things. Um, <laughs> But that's not where Paul gets at. Paul doesn't say do stuff like that. It's just, that's silliness. It's like taking the rose, take, buying roses and duct taping them to a steel pole and saying it's a rose bush. But he mentions four character qualities. Four attitudes that how we should approach our work. So I'm going to give you these four attitudes that if you want to, you want to see Christ put on display in your workplace, here's some four attitudes. Number one, Respect. Respect. That's just a soft way of saying do what your boss says. Because it actually says to be submissive. And this kind of instructions all throughout the New Testament. I mean, you can find it all in Colossians. Uh, Paul says, bondservants, obey in, what's that word? It says everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasing, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily because your boss is really awesome. Maybe, maybe not. But who is awesome? The Lord. You're doing this for the Lord. You're not doing it for men. So have this attitude of respect and submissiveness. Do what your boss says. Number two, excellence. I'm going to go to work today and do my best. Well-pleasing, not argumentative, not trying to do the least, but trying to do The best, not the minimum required. You're trying to bless your employer, trying to bless your customers. You're trying to bless your coworkers. Uh, C.S. Lewis gave this example uh, in talking about how we approach work, and uh, these explorers went into this big valley and had all these beautiful flowers that no human being had ever seen. 
you know, for thousands of years. And the thought was, is this, all this beauty wasted? Because no human being has, has ever seen it. And like, no, it hasn't been wasted because God has seen it. And God creates beauty first and foremost for himself. And what, what you do in secret, even if your boss doesn't uh, give you a high five or a raise, it's still, it's because it's for God, it's beautiful. So take this work ethic, in, take this ethic into your work. So here's a question. Are you doing the minimum required to get by? Are you trying to bless your boss? Well, he's not a very good boss. Well, you're not doing it for him. You're doing it for the Lord. Integrity. Number three, integrity. No pilfering. How many here pilfer? How many here have to look that up just like I did? (laughs) This means stealing small things that don't feel like you're stealing anything. Like office supplies. Like time. I'll come in a little late, leave a little early, take, you know, a long lunch break. My boss is not looking. I'll check out Facebook, surf the net. You don't cheat even though no one else is looking because God sees. Hebrews 4.13 says there are no secrets. All lays bare, lays bare. To whom the one we must give account. We do things unto the Lord. Fourthly, confidence. That we have a confidence that's way sturdier than our job. Because some, for some of us, our temptation would be not to take our job very seriously. For some of us, it would be to take our job too seriously. So we should have this confidence that's not tied up in, in my... So, so the believer is one who doesn't think about their position in their company, but they think about their position in Christ. They're not worried about the flow chart as much as they are worried about who they are in Christ. And if, you're, if you don't think about this and you have any ambition at all, it is, it's, you're going you're gonna to get your identity out of, you, out of your work. And we addressed this last week. It's why people overwork. It's why people, you know, in society now, uh, what are the first two questions they ask you when they meet you? What's your name and what? What do you do? Are you, are you more important or am I more important is what we're thinking. Do I, do I say yes, sir, to you, or do you say yes, sir, to me? And if, I, if, what, if what I do isn't very important, I'll have to make it sound a little bit more important. Our worth is not wrapped up in what we do, but it's defined by our position in Christ. And if we can carry these four attitudes, excellence, integrity, uh, respect, and confidence, we will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything. That word adorn means cosmeo, which describes arranging jewels to display the, the big jewel, the beauty of Christ. So our lives are like the setting to which the jewel of the gospel is put on display. And if you do these things, you will not lack for opportunities to share the gospel. People will come to you, why? Man, everybody else does this. What is your hope? Where is your confidence? What do you, how do you maintain this attitude? Our boss is a jerk. How come you don't slander him? How come you, how come you work? How, you try, how come you always trying to bless this boss who doesn't seem to treat us very well? Well, I'm not doing it for my boss. I'm doing it for, for Jesus, for what he's done. You'll have plenty of opportunities to talk about the gospel. Where do we get the motivation to be like this? Again, the big point here Paul's trying to make in, in, in teaching Titus to teach the church is not that, you know, you white knuckle. It's not this external, it's something that comes from within. And, and the, the two things that he mentions, he mentions the grace of God, that we need to be motivated by the grace of God. And then we need to be motivated by the second coming of Jesus. 
And I'll explain that. First of all, the grace of God. It says the grace of God has appeared. And that word appeared is where we get the word epiphany. It just shows up that it means that grace has become visible to us in, in Jesus Christ. That the grace of God has always existed. The grace of God has always existed, but it shined bright to us in Jesus. You know, during Christmas time, we, we read that great prophecy from Isaiah 9, that those who walk in darkness have seen a great light, that Jesus has appeared to us to bring salvation for all people. The scandal of the gospel is he accepts people who were once his enemies. He loves those who are not just his friends and who treat him well, but he loves his enemy, he forgives the very people who wanted him dead. It's scandalous, it's outrageous, and it leads some people to think, well, hey, if, if grace abounds, then why don't we just keep sinning? Why don't, you know, if God just forgives us all the time, why don't we just keep on sinning? If God will just empty my sin bucket every time I fill it, why don't I just keep filling it up? And then I'll go to some priest or pastor on a Sunday service and empty what I filled. Messed up, I'm sorry. Messed up, I'm sorry. Messed up, I'm sorry. Back and forth, back and forth. That's not Christianity. It's not Christianity. Real grace, check this out. Real grace trains us to say no to godliness, or excuse me, say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and yes to self-control to being upright, and to being godly. It's interesting to me that you have to be trained in godliness. My question for you is, have you been trained? Have you been trained to say no? In the home, at the workplace, in your friendship. Because here's the thing. No is a very antisocial word. Are you going to go? Are you going to do this? No. Why not? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? It takes courage to say no. Um, and you need a reason to say no. Grace teaches us to say no, which is very different than how most people think about Christian morality. Most of the time, when you think that we should uh, say no to sin, it's because thou, you know, the Bible says, thou shalt not. That's what we think of. How come we don't do these things? Well, because the Bible says, thou shalt not. That's why I don't do these things, because the Bible says something outside of us, the law outside of us says, you shall not do that. So that's why I don't do that. But the New Testament says that grace has appeared and instructs us, it teaches us from the inside of us, from our own conviction, to say no. So we say no. Because we want to say no. Not because thou shalt not. It says in Jeremiah that he's going to write the law of God on our hearts. What does that mean? It means that grace is going to teach us to say no. Because otherwise, what is Christianity? A bunch of religious people who aren't allowed to. Who just repress their desires. Hey, come on, you want to do this? No, why not? Well, because I can't. Because I'm a Christian. You want to join? We're doing this awesome series on Titus. You should come check it out. No, I don't want to join. You look miserable. Grace teaches us to say no. How does grace teach us to say no? It starts by telling you that you are thoroughly accepted. That you are thoroughly accepted. In the moment that you... Uh, by faith, receive Jesus and believe in Jesus, you're not instantly changed. You have to be trained in that. But you are instantly accepted. 
you, you ace the exam before you even take the exam. You show up to the Olympics and they give you the gold medal and you didn't even run. You can't even run. You're out of shape. You're going to get winded in the first lap. But you get the gold medal. Why? Because you deserve it? No, because Christ won it on your behalf. He accepts you not based upon human effort, but on divine effort. He does this. And you become aware of the gospel and you hear Jesus who is perfect in every way. They couldn't find a charge against him. There's no charge against Jesus. One criminal was mocking him. The other criminal was like, why are you mocking him? He's done nothing wrong. There's no charge against this man. Pilate, I can't find anything wrong with him. He tried to wash his hands of it. He was the just one. Everybody knew that. He was pure, holy, spotless, stood in our place. That's why he came to earth. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. The Bible says that we've been captured by sin and held to ransom. Jesus paid so that we can go free, but he didn't go free. He hung on the cross, and he stood in our place, and he paid the penalty for our death. He bore our shame, and it says that this sin, our sin was imputed to him. And that his righteousness, his perfect record was imputed to us. Paul writes to the Corinthians, he that knew no sin became sin. And we've been justified. We've been made righteous. I'm a terrible sinner. You know, how how could this be? The beauty of salvation is that you are instantly cleansed, that you are given a gift of righteousness the moment you become a Christian. Otherwise, who could be saved? No one could. It's given to us a gift. Jesus on the cross took away our guilt. Jesus on the cross took away our shame. Jesus on the cross took away our sin. That's what John the Baptist declared. When he saw him, he says, hey, there's Jesus who takes away the sin of the world. Has he taken away your sin? Brian, I mean, I'm just like, you know, I've been been trying to do my best. I've been trying to be a good person. I'm hoping God accepts me. Here's what needs to happen. You need Jesus to take away your sin. You need him to give you this free gift. And you can walk out today free of guilt, free of shame, free of sin. And those who've had their sin taken away, to us, grace teaches us to say no because you are aware of the price that Jesus paid and you're aware of the robe of righteousness that you now wear. You've been adorned with a, a just spotless white robe of righteousness. The Bible uses this language that we are now hidden in Christ. We are now hidden. We wear this robe of righteousness. Now, I've officiated a few weddings in my day, and there are a lot of great moments in the wedding. There's the vows. There's the kiss. There's my sermon. These are all like super big highlights of the, of the, of the ceremony. But the highlight of the pinnacle, of course, is when the bride, for the very first time, enters the room. I mean, the moment, the, the, you, know, the, you know, just everyone's looking and some are crying and everyone's standing, looking her best, dressed in this beautiful white robe. I was doing a wedding at Forest Park uh, once, and it was going to be an outside rain, uh, wedding until it started raining. And um, before the wedding started, this bride had... Um, some little brothers, and they're out playing in the, you know, there's past, they're out playing in the rain and actually getting all muddy, and they asked her sister, would you like to join us? 
Now, she didn't, th- this bride didn't say, oh, I can't, you know, my, you know, my da- dad won't let us. She's like, not on your life. Like, it took forever to get in this dress. And like, like I've spent, you know, I've, I'm, I'm never, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to get in the mud. Look how I'm spotless. I'm white. I'm pure. I'm... Now, she could have done whatever she wanted. She's the bride, right? Brides can do whatever they want on the wedding day. But she didn't want to. Because she knew she was dressed in this perfect white dress. How does grace teach you to say no? It reminds you that you are perfectly accepted in Jesus. It reminds you of the price that he paid. And that you wear a robe of righteousness. Why would I want to muss around with the mud? And it teaches you to say no to that. And it teaches you to say yes to godliness. And, and if you get this, you'll even begin to build rhythms of your life, community around you. I mean, brides on their wedding day, they have like this entourage just like to protect anybody from like getting anything on their dress. And, you know, if there's a rain, they just like, you know, they get this massive umbrella. And they, you'll do that. You'll begin to see like, man, I, I, want, to, I want to live this life. Not because I have to, not because the Bible says thou shall not. It's because you want to put Christ on display. You're his possession. You're his workmanship. And you're zealous to do good works. Another motivator Paul mentions is the second coming of Jesus. It says, it says this. It says, it says those in, verse, in the verse 12, it says, lives in this present age. So we live in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, appearing of the glory of a great God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, many people think to really, the, the people who focus on the second coming of Jesus, they're like, you know, the angry people in the street corner. And they, you know, they don't shave very often. And they, you know, they kind of wear, you know, it's just like, they're just like, they don't even care about this world because they're just focused on the world to come. That's actually not a true perspective of how, um, uh, what, what it's meant to be like. Hey, if I, if I focus on the second coming of Jesus, do I just like, oh, I don't really care about this. Well, no, that's not it at all. You, you have, because people who, who think about the second coming but also really want to make a difference in this world, they, they long for the conditions that will happen once Christ returns. Because when Christ returns, guess what? Justice is unleashed in all the earth. There is no more death. There is no more suffering. There is no more injustice. There is no more slavery there's no crime there's none of that it's just he's he's going to make every wrong right and everybody's going to know him everybody's going to know the name of jesus he's going to create this new heavens this new earth so so those of us who focus on you know the the second it, it leads to us wanting to long for that to happen here and the good news is that the kingdom of god isn't something way in the distance but when Jesus says, says the kingdom of God is at hand, it's here right now and are coming. And as we live, long to live and put Christ on display, we're longing for the kingdom to come to this earth. We're longing for people to know Jesus. We're longing to fill this earth with his glory as the waters covers the sea. We're looking to put him on display. We're looking for right relationships. We're looking for forgiveness to reign. We're looking for love to reign. We're looking for justice to reign because we're looking for Christ to reign in us Christians aren't those who just like put on this 
pretty picture on the outside, but when you get up close, it's really hypocritical. That's not what it's about. It's about taking the gospel. It's about taking this message, this good news inside of you and allowing it to bear fruit in your life to where you want to put Christ on display and you, and you have this, you, you're, you're like the best employee you can be and you're, and you're loving your wife and you're loving your husband and you're being, the, you know, you're being the best single person you can be. You're being the best grandmother, the best parent, the best child, the best brother, the best sister. Not from this external effort, but you're motivated from the inside out. You're motivated by grace and you're motivated by the coming of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.